stand with me as we look at this, this conversation that is taking place here in Jerusalem, beginning in verse 6, and we'll read through verse 21 this morning. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. And Father, our, our prayer is that our hearts would be encouraged, we would be strengthened, that you would protect the, the unity of, of this body of believers, that you would preserve us from conflict, and that where conflict does exist, that we would handle it in a, in a godly way, in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. Uh, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we were looking two weeks ago, at five things that we need to consider to help resolve gospel conflicts in a church. So in other words, whenever there's a, a conflict like the type of conflict that occurs in the church of Antioch and now in the church of Jerusalem as they're assembled, what are some things we need to keep in mind as we attempt to resolve these conflicts? What are some things we need to consider? And here's kind of the, the main idea that we looked at two weeks ago. Here's kind of the main idea that I, I wanted us to consider. It's this. Uh, confronting threats to the gospel for God's glory needs to be done in such a way that it preserves the unity of the church, it protects the souls of the saints, and continues the witness to the world. And so we, we have this desire to confront a threat to the gospel, but we recognize that it needs to be done in a very careful way. We need to make sure we're doing this in a, in a wise way, and so we're going to say, okay, I want to do this, 
but I'm going to do is as much as possible to preserve the unity of the church. So there, there may be a need to say, okay, these people are not affirming the gospel, and so they're going to need to be outside of the church. They're a threat to the gospel. They're either adding to the gospel, they're taking away from the gospel, or they're encouraged people, encouraging people to live in a way that's contradictory to the testimony of the gospel. And so they're, they're, they're false teachers, or they're believing false teaching, and so they're, they're not part of the church, but we, we want to address this issue in such a way that it preserves the, the unity of the church. We don't want to create distinctions where we don't need to create distinctions. So here's my sister in Christ, and she believes something different than I do about a, a, a secondary issue, and I, I don't want to break fellowship with her. I want to make sure that we can preserve the unity of the church. As I deal with this issue that I need to deal with, I don't want to do it in such a way that it is divisive to the rest of the church. I also want to make sure that I'm protecting the souls of the saints as I do this. I want to do this in a, a gentle way. So maybe a, a, a precious saint has heard some teaching and they're, I'm not sure exactly how to, to handle this or think about this. I don't want to come down on them so hard that it hurts them, it harms them. I want to deal with them in a gentle way. And then I also, as I deal with a threat to the gospel within the church, what I want to do? I want to protect our witness. I want to do it in a godly way that protects our ability to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So we began looking at kind of five things to consider. We looked at two of them last week. We'll look at two of them in a little more depth this, this morning. And then the, the fifth one we'll talk about just for a moment. And then we'll talk about it in more depth as we cover some verses next week because it, it deals with the same, same thing. So let, let's just review real quickly. Number one, we said the first thing we want to consider is we want to consider carefully what the issues of disagreement are. Okay, what, what exactly are we talking about in the text? Look at the text with me. It says that they had gathered together, verse 6, to consider this matter carefully. And there had been much debate. There was much discussion. And then the second thing that we want to do, not, we don't want to just consider what the issues are. We also want to consider, secondly, how these issues that we're talking about affect the gospel. So you're saying this. This person's saying this. Are these are these things that we're saying things that affect the gospel? And if so, how does this affect the gospel? How does this teaching affect the, 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 the gospel that we're trying to be faithful to proclaim? That's what we talked about two weeks ago. And we talked about the need as a church in our culture to pursue both peace and truth as, as we do this. And now here's, here's the third thing that I want us to consider as we think about gospel conflicts in the church and how to handle them. Number three, consider keeping silent, okay? Consider keeping silent, at least for a little bit, and at certain times, we need to keep our mouths shut. Look what the text says in verse 12. It says, and all the assembly did what? <laughs> they fell silent, and they listened. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now you're saying, Dana, are, are you saying that, that we need to, when the gospel is under attack, we need to keep our mouths shut and not defend the gospel and not pro proclaim the truth? No, that, that's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm, what I'm encouraging you to do is that at times when there's times of tension, when, the, when there's gospel conflict or even other types of conflict within the, con the context of the local church, there are times, at least momentarily, where it's very wise to, to just take a step back Take a beat and be quiet. Let me explain what I mean by looking at the text. First, notice Paul, uh, that Luke doesn't tell us exactly what Paul and Barnabas say. It says 
Everyone's quiet, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So unlike what he's about to do with James, where he communicates some of the, the speech that James gives, and unlike what he just did with Peter, as he related at least some of the words that Peter said, uh, here he, he doesn't quote any of what Barnabas and Paul say. But he, he, he tells kind of the general topic that they covered. And so Paul and Barnabas stand up, everyone's quiet, and they say, okay, here, here's what just happened with us. And the, uh, presumably they're, they're talking about their time on their missionary journey. Maybe they talk about arriving in the synagogue in Antioch and Pisidia, and they say, okay, you know, we, you know, Paul stood up and he was presenting the gospel there in the synagogue, and he, he talked about, remember what we talked about in Acts, Acts chapter 13? He says, okay, here's the, in 14, here's the, uh, here's the promise that God made. Here's the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus Christ. And he says, okay, uh, remember, here's the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And often what happens in, in redemptive history is that people have taken the salvific message that God has delivered and they've rejected it. And Paul says, as I was presenting the gospel in the synagogue, I said, don't be like those people. Receive God's gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, through faith. And Paul and Barnabas relate, as what happened there in Acts chapter 13, that some of the Gentiles responded positively to the gospel message. And he, talks about, he would have talked about what happened in the next synagogue. In verse 48 of Acts 13, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And that's presumably, when we're here in Acts 15, and Paul and Barnabas are talking about what God had done, that's some of the things they would have been sharing. The Gentiles respond to the gospel message. And furthermore, God confirmed that their response was genuine, that he accepted it. And how did he affirm that? Through signs and wonders. And maybe he would have talked about some from what happened in Acts chapter 14, where they were in uh, Iconium, and they, they had remained for a long time, and, and the Lord bears witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That's Acts 14, verse 3. So, they're relating these things. They're, they're sharing what, what God had done, that God was confirming the validity of the profession of faith on the part of the Gentiles by giving them the, the gift of the Spirit and accompanying that proclamation of their faith with signs and wonders. God is confirming that these Gentiles are truly part of his people. Notice this too. Notice here, in verse 12, that as Barnabas and Paul are speaking, the entire assembly is quiet. They're, they're listening. In contrast to some of the disagreement and debate that had taken place earlier, where it, it get, there's an impression that there was a lot of people talking, here there's, there's a time of, of quietness while Paul and Barnabas speak. And frankly, to handle gospel conflicts within a church well, we need to know when do we need to keep our mouths shut. And I, I want to go a little bit deeper here and talk about a, a theology of, of mouth shutting. You know, when is, it, when is it good, theologically speaking, to have our... Right? A couple things here. First, it's wise to keep our mouths shut when we, when we realize that speaking in this moment, in this way, 
would not be edifying to the saints. It's not a time in which speech is going to encourage people to love Jesus Christ more. So, for example, maybe, maybe it's a time where some people are engaged in a quarrel. Two people are upset at one another. And as they're upset, there's, there's disagreement and dissension, and you're like, you know what? Um, me speaking right now would not be helpful. These two people are engaged in an argument, and uh, if I enter this, now there's just three people arguing. Neither one of them have invited me into this conversation. I don't have a relationship with these two people necessarily. They're not asking me to come in to help resolve the situation. All I'm going to be doing is, is just adding another person to an argument. Uh, Proverbs says in uh, Proverbs 26:17, whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Not very smart, right? Sometimes as we wade into an issue, we say, okay, this is not going to be helpful to my brothers and sisters in Christ to help them love him more, and so I, I need to be quiet. I need to just step back and be, be silent. There's a great line uh, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by, by C.S. Lewis. There's the, the four children who are staying with the professor, and two of the children have, have gone to the professor to ask him some advice because their youngest sister, Lucy, is, is kind of uh, talking about going to this magical world, Narnia, and they don't believe that what she's saying is true. And they're not sure if she's crazy or a liar or what. And, and uh, the professor says, look, she's obviously not crazy. She's not a person who tells lies. And then the conversation con- concludes with these words. But what are we to do, said Susan. She felt that the conversation was beginning to get off the point. My dear young lady, said the professor, suddenly looking up with a very sharp expression at both of them, there's one plan, there's one plan which no one has yet suggested and which is well worth trying. What's that, said Susan. We might all try minding our own business, said he, and that was the end of the conversation. Uh, there are times where we would just do best to mind our own business and not enter into situations in which we have not been invited. That's going to preserve the unity of the church oftentimes. There's oftentimes we want to keep silent too when an argument's being made by a person in bad faith who, who just, they, they want to argue. They, they, they're just a person who's argumentative. They, they want to entice an argument, and so they're going to try to get you to talk about things, and, and you, you step back and say, you know what, I, I think this person just wants to argue with me. Paul would tell Titus, look, if there's a person who's trying to cause an argument and dissension, he says in Titus 3.10, as for the person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Some people love to argue, and you would be wise in a church to not engage that. There's George Bernard Shaw, who's credited with the line, uh, never wrestle with a pig. Uh, You just get dirty, and the pig likes it. You know, there, there are some people, they just want to argue, they just want to just get into this discussion with you, and, and it's not helpful. It's not going to help them love Jesus anymore for you to engage in this argument with them. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's foolish. It's also time to be quiet when someone wants to have a silly argument. There's, a, someone, there, there's some silly discussion, and, and, and speaking into it just is going to provide oxygen to the flames of controversy. Or, or maybe it's, a, it's, it's an issue that someone really wants to talk with you about, and as you, you say, okay, yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing to talk, talk about. It's a, maybe it's a hot-button topic or something like that, but it's, it's a distraction. 
you want to talk about this issue because you don't want to talk about the bigger issues that God would have us think about and, and meditate on. I, I wrote down a lot of verses from Paul's epistles to Timothy and Titus. And I'm not, I, I can't read them all, but I just wrote down verses where Paul advises Timothy and Titus to not talk. We, we think of Paul as a very bold person, like taking on controversy and dealing with issues. There are a lot of times where he says, look, don't talk about this. L- listen to what he says. I'll give a couple examples. First Timothy 4, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Don't, don't talk about the silly things. 1 Timothy 6, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So, so don't in, get, get engaged with these, the, uh, in, 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 this, in this context, there were these contemporary arguments that were going on, um, um, some minutiae, maybe some Jewish myths, and, and he said, look, don't, don't get involved in that. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, a couple of verses, verse 14, remind them of these things, charge them before God, don't quarrel about words, don't quarrel about words, it does no good and only ruins the hearers. Verse 16, avoid irreverent battle, it will lead people more and more to, un- oh, sorry, It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Verse 23 of 2 Timothy 2. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. That's his second letter to Bethany. I'm sorry, to Timothy. (laughs) Titus 3.9. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. What is this? This is a theology of keeping your mouth shut. And if you want to handle gospel conflicts well, there are times you're going to keep your mouth firmly shut tight because you don't want to get in someone else's quarrel. You don't want to talk about foolish things. You don't want to do things that are going to to lead people away from the thing that they need to think about the most. And what is that? The Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and who he calls them to be through faith in him. You say, okay, how does silence in these times help us deal with gospel conflicts? Well, it helps us by focusing on the larger heart issues. There are times where people say, hey, Daniel, can we get together and can we talk about some, some hot-button issue? And I'll say, you know what? Um, let, let's think, why, why do you want to talk about this, this issue? Um, I, I'll, we'll get together. I'd love to talk, but let's... Maybe, we, maybe this isn't the issue we need to talk about first. Maybe there's, maybe there's another issue. And, and the reason that I, I sometimes ask that is because I, I think we all have this tendency, including myself, it's easy sometimes to focus on some sort of hot-button issue instead of focusing on the heart change that, that I need to be focused on as I contemplate who Jesus Christ is and my relationship with him. I want, in my conversations with others, to focus on the gospel. Who is Jesus Christ? 
How is my relationship with him? And so if, if, if we are in a relationship together, we're going to have a conversation. I, I want to make sure that my words are, are focused on that which is most important. I want to make for sure, first of all, that you and I are both contemplating who is Jesus Christ. And what does God's word say about Jesus Christ? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you and me, who were once alienated, we were separated from God, we were hostile in mind, we were doing evil things. Now he's reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So there's going to be a time for us to talk about what the weather is going to be like on the day of the rapture, okay? That's an issue maybe we need to talk about. But first, let's say, okay, how are we contemplating, as we have that conversation, are we contemplating who Jesus Christ is? Am I, am I in, in awe of the fullness of Jesus Christ being lived out in my life? Am I in awe of the fact that I have been reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ? And then we can talk about the King James Version of the Bible, okay? But if you get together and say, Dana, let's get together and let's talk about how the ESV doesn't translate uh, Romans 9 well, I'd say, you know what, I'm not sure if that's a con the conversation we need to be having right now. Let's first, let's, first of all, let's bask in Colossians chapter 3. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Here's the reality for you and me, brothers and sisters at Bethany Community Church. Sometimes we want to have conversations about minutiae and we want to argue about tiny things so we don't have to confront the reality that within our heart we are idolaters. And so I can talk and I can argue about uh, which, uh, you know, what I should do for schooling my children or I can talk and I can argue about some sort of uh, hot button political issue of the day and I can have that conversation without confronting the, idolatry, the, the sexual morality of idolatry in my heart or the, the impurity or the passion, the, the covetousness, the greed that I have. I can talk about all these other things and I can uh, shout off my opinion about all these different things. I, so, and that way I won't have to confront the reality that my heart is far and cold, far away and cold toward the Lord. Those other issues are important. I'm not saying don't have those conversations, but I am saying there's a time to keep our mouths shut when there's silly issues and even when there are important issues that, aren't, that are distracting us from the most important issues. It's also wise, and that's what's happening here, to keep silent so that we can hear better. We also want to keep quiet so we can hear better. You, know, you, you may be more gifted than me, but I, I find it really hard to listen to two people talking at the same time especially if I'm one of them, right? You know, it's really difficult. You know, I'm 
watching a TV show and, and, the, and the kids want, want to tell me something. I don't have a mute button for the children, so I have to mute the TV. You know? so. Oh, and they're more important. Um, when you're quiet, you can hear better. And when you're quiet, a couple things may happen. When you're quiet, first of all, you might realize what you thought was the issue in a gospel conflict wasn't the issue. You're quiet, you listen to the other person talking, and you realize, oh, you know what, I, I thought you were saying we shouldn't sing in church. You're just saying I shouldn't sing in church. Okay, that's, or so loudly. Okay, now that's a different issue. Or I, I, I'm quiet, and I realize, you know what, uh, I, was, I was wrong. I'm listening to you, and I, I realize I was, I was wrong on this issue. That's what's happening here in Acts 15. Some people are going to realize they're wrong. Some in the group didn't think it was possible for God not to require obedience to the old covenant. They keep their mouths shut momentarily and they realize, I was wrong on this issue. It happens in Acts 11. They hear what God has done with Cornelius. Those who objected had no further objections. They kept their mouths shut. They listened to what was being said. They're, oh, I'm, I'm wrong here. A couple applications. A couple applications. As you think about dealing with conflict, conflict in the church, one, Consider carefully when and under what circumstances to speak. Two, don't, don't just assume you know what the issues are. Listen carefully and make sure you truly understand what the issues are. And then three, uh, don't enter, enter, a, enter into a conversation just assuming that you're right. Enter the hypothetical possibility that even on an important issue, you may be in the wrong. An important question to ask yourself when was, when was the last time when you were engaged in an argument with someone and you were wrong? If you say, you know what, I can't remember the last time that I entered into a conversation with someone and I was wrong and we had an argument. <laughs> that might be a problem, right? You may be right a lot of the time, but if you're always right, you're probably wrong, Right? There's wisdom in being quiet at times. We need to enter into these conversations. Okay, I'm, I'm, God isn't wrong. God's word isn't wrong. But I might be. You say, well, Daniel, what, what keeps a conversation from just being about our experiences? And I feel like this is true. This person is, feels like this is true. I was quiet. I listened to them. What, what helps me here? here here's the, the next thing we need to consider. Number four, we need to consider what Scripture says. We need to consider what Scripture says. Look what happens next. Barnabas and Paul finish speaking, and now James replies. James replied, he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And so uh, James is affirming, okay, this is what Peter said. And he's affirming that there's, there's truth to that. Now, Peter's experiences are different from the experience, experiences you and I have. So if I stood up and I said, you know what, um, this morning I'm going to talk about this experience that I had and I'm going to share this with you and this is going to be authoritative for your life. I, I, I'm confident that a lot of us at Bethany Community Church would say, I, I don't care what your experiences are, Daniel. They may be true, they may not be true, but, but your experiences alone aren't enough to justify me living my life in a certain way or not living my life in a certain way. I need more than that. And that's what happens here as well. James is saying, look, uh, Simeon has, has given us his experiences, and he's, he's, he's talked about God's confirmed this. But here's, here's some good news for us as well. Um, it says that not only, not only have, do we see this, 
this in, in Simeon's life, but this is what the words of the prophets agree with. And then he quotes two different passages here. And it's an important principle here. Our experiences, even things we say, I, I think God is doing this, or it seems like God is doing this, our experiences always need to be taken back to the Word of God to see if they confirm what God's Word says, to see if our interpretation of an event matches what God's Word says about it. So, the good news here is that James says, yes, Scripture reveals that God is indeed bringing in new worshipers for his name, just as he prophesied. Again, two passages. One, he quotes Amos chapter 9. Now, Amos in Amos 9 is talking about an incredibly devastating judgment that God is going to bring on his people. And then, it says in verse 8 of Amos 9 that God's going to destroy the, a sin, the sinful nation, Israel there. But God doesn't just destroy, he also rebuild, rebuilds. And the Davidic line, this, this line through which the Messiah's promise is going to be repaired. God doesn't just destroy, he rebuilds. In verse 11 of Amos 9, it says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. And so James says, look, what's happening here, what we're encountering God doing confirms what Scripture says that God will do. He also quotes from Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 we see that God's saving work goes beyond just Israel. Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, you can turn there if you'd like, Isaiah 43, verse 5, Isaiah says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. James says, look, God has prophesied that this will take place, that his plans are not just to, to bring about the salvation of Israel, but that all the nations are going to be gathered together, all the people that God has called for his glory. They take the experiences that they're, they're wrestling with at this council and they say, okay, here's what God's word says. Those of you who are part of the Pharisaical party, you have some experiences, you have some, some things that you believe to be true, Others of us have some things that we believe to be true. What, what does God's word say? What does it confirm that God is or isn't doing? Many of us live our lives as little bundle of our experiences. <laughs> and, and those experiences be, become the source of our authority. We view our lives just through our experiences. And so we say, okay, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a person who's, who's ambitious. So we, we view our lives through the, the lens of ambition. Or I'm a, I'm a person who's been, who's been hurt. I'm a, people have harmed me. And, and so as I look at people who've harmed me, now that, that experience shapes how I view relationships and it shapes 
shapes what I believe about you. It shapes what I believe about my responsibility to respond to you. And my identity becomes my, my experiences. And, and if, if that becomes true in a church, our identity is be- becoming our experiences. Gospel conflict is absolutely inevitable. Because your experiences are going to be different than my experiences. And if each, each of us are saying my experiences are my source of authority, there's going to be this incredible conflict. Unresolvable. It's not wise to live this way. And then we can find the scripture that justifies our experience if we, if we say, okay, I'm going to first start with experience and then go to scripture. Instead, what, what must we do? We have to take our experiences to God and his word and then, and then find him faithful. The Thursday before uh, Hannah left for college, we were going on our last little run together and she was talking about ministry and things like that. And I said, well, you know, whenever I was, whenever I was kind of like in phase one of ministry, I said my belief was that I was going to be able to look at what other people had done. And, you know, I'd been an associate pastor and things like that. I was like, I'm going to do all the good things that I, I've, I've seen other pastors do and then just not do the bad things and I'll, I'll be good to go right? Uh, and I'll, I'll be a successful pastor. And then, um, and then I became a pastor, and I realized, oh, I, I, I thought I knew everything that I was going to be doing. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. So kind of phase two of ministry was like, okay, there's these really famous pastors, and, and they know what they're doing, and so I'll just, you know, I'll just find out from their experience what did they find successful and, and helpful, and I can do some of those things. And then uh, entered phase three and realized, oh, those guys don't know what they're doing either. Uh, you know, as you're in ministry long enough, the people who are in ascendancy when you're young in the ministry now, a lot of them have ministries that aren't going as, as well. And then you know, phase four has just been saying, okay, you know what? What I've always known to be true is, is, is indeed true. This whole ministry thing is of the Lord, right? Only God knows what really needs to be happening. My experiences are not going to be helpful for me ultimately in deciding what to do. They can, they can, help, me, they can help me apply God's word, but in terms of knowing the truth and knowing what to do, my experiences are going to be sometimes a very little benefit because my perception of my experience, my emotional response to my experience is very, very suspect. Take your experiences to God in his word Test them against his word and find him faithful. Find him faithful, beloved. This morning your heart is troubled. You're, you're troubled by how another believer is failing to act in an area. And you say, okay, this, we're having this, this conflict and I, I wish they were behaving in a certain way. And, and my experience tells me that there's this un, disunity between us and this conflict. Take that to the word of the Lord. And what does God's word say? God's word says in Romans 14, 14, who are you to pass judgment on another servant? Before his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand before the, for the Lord is able to make him stand. If you say, you know what, my experiences are going to dictate how I respond to this believer. That is a gospel conflict, a church conflict waiting to happen. 
I want that believer to act the way that I want them to act. Taking my experiences to God's word, I say, you know what? Before the Lord, he or she stands or falls, unity is preserved. Or let's, let's say we're in this situation. Your, your heart is troubled over persecution you're enduring from another person or maybe even another believer. You're angry this morning. You, you feel wronged. You, you want that other person to, to pay. There's this potential for this, this huge conflict coming, and, and there's, a, there's, there's a danger even for your own heart. What do you do? You take that to Scripture. First Peter tells you, look, this, this, this is a grace of God. First Peter 2.19, this is a gracious thing that when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. First Peter 2.21, to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This, this morning, your experience tells you, okay, I'm, I'm in this situation and I'm, I'm suffering. Maybe there's a, a, a suffering from a, a, a boss being unfair or a person in the church who's treating you in a way that you believe is not a, a helpful way to, to treat you. And you know, look, what does God's word say? Look, suffering is a grace of God. So I don't feel that way. My experience doesn't tell me that this is a grace of God. This is a grace of God because God's word tells you it is. So okay, I understand how I understand how suffering has been used in other believers' lives and how other believers have grown from this. I don't think I'm going to grow from this. Suffering is a grace of God. I continually take my experiences to the word of God and say, "Okay, God, I believe you. I be, I believe that what you're saying in 1 Peter 2 is true. I believe that this is a gracious thing when I'm mindful of you, I suffer." I endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. I'm in the situation at work. I'm in the situation in a relationship with a family member. I'm in this uh, situation in relationship to a, to a spouse. I'm in this situation in relationship to a, 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 a close friend. I, I believe that this is your gracious hand upon my life. I don't feel that to be true, but I believe it. It's good news for us in Christ. We test God's word and we find it good. And that is going to enable us to handle conflict within the church when it takes place in a way that protects our witness, that protects the saints, that protects our gospel proclamation. Here's the last thing I want us to just touch on. We're going to touch on this next week, so I'm just going to say this, this last thing. When I say I'm just going to say, you know what that really means. Here's, here's the last thing. Uh, the third thing is this. We, we need to consider how to live in submission to the law of love. They're not under the law of Moses any longer. The, the Mosaic law does not have any, any binding restrictions on the saints. The church in Jerusalem is going to have to come to that realization that doesn't mean that there are no constrictions on the believer any longer in any way whatsoever. We are now constrained by a new law, the law of love. We have a responsibility to live in mutual love and submission to one another. And if we're going to handle gospel conflicts that potentially take place in the church well, we're going to have to believe that to be true. 
here in verses 19 through 21, just kind of look at it for a moment, and then we'll, these things are going to be talked about in the, the coming paragraphs, since we're going to deal with them next week. But he says, James says, look, uh, this is true. It's, it's true. We can't add anything to the gospel here. That is absolutely correct. Scripture says this. We've considered the issues, and, and, and this is true. So here's what we need to do. We need to figure out a way to do two things. We need to, to figure out a way in order to make sure that we continue to grow in holiness, and we also need to make sure that we can live in unity. Like We need to put enough restrictions on ourselves so that we can live within a, a church assembly of different people. So there's going to be some constraints I put on myself, not because they're legalistic obligations I need to do to be found pleasing to God, but because I, I need to be able to be able to, to do this worship thing with other believers. And so there are some constraints I'm going to put on my liberty in order to minister to others, and there's other things that I need to do that aren't things that are going to, to make me justified before God, but I'm going to do these things because I desire to grow in holiness. I'm going to read my Bible and meditate on upon God's Word, not because I desire to do that in order to be found acceptable to God, but because I want to do those things so I can grow in my understanding of Him and grow in holiness. I'm going to restrain from certain, from certain uh, conduct, not for the purpose of finding acceptance by God by, on the basis of that conduct, but I'm going to do those things because I desire to grow in my holiness. So James says, look, here's, here's my judgment. Let's not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't, don't cause them to feel weighty restrictions, but instead, let's tell them to do this. We'll talk about these things next week. Uh, abstain from things polluted by idols. Abstain from sexual immorality and abstain from that which has been strangled and from blood. And he says, this is something they're going to have an understanding that they need to do, and this is something that's going to allow believers to live together in unity and to pursue holiness. We live in a world that doesn't love truth and a world that doesn't love peace. We live in a world full of conflict. In the church, there are going to be times we need to address conflict, be able to consider the matters carefully, to consider carefully what, is the, what are the gospel issues, knowing when to be silent, and knowing how to live in submission to one another in love as we look to God's word is going to help us here. Confronting threats to the gospel for God's glory must be done in such a way that preserves the unity of the church, protects the souls of the saints, and continues the witness to the world of our faith and love for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. And Father, we do love your son, Jesus. Father, more than our financial security, more than our reputation, more than our foolish pride, we recognize that we have the, these idols that draw our hearts away from you. And, and more than those things, we, we love you. We love your son, Jesus. And we pray this morning that you would help us, by your grace, cling to him. That we'd experience the, the, the truth of your word, that, that there's d more delight in you than, than the pleasures in the world. We, we pray that we would, by your grace, turn to your son, Jesus, and, Jesus, and find him altogether lovely. We pray this the work of your spirit and the power of your name. Amen.